Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Guys, welcome to Just the Sip, where the pour is always hot. First off, let me introduce my next guest. It might take me a while, so you might want to get something to drink because this bitch is busier than anybody I know. She working harder right now than than Wayne Brady, all right? She is <laughs> the host of HBO's first unscripted hit series, We're Here, which is, just got renewed for a second season. She is nominated for a Critics' Choice Real TV Award. She has a brand new comedy special called Bob the Drag Queen, live at Caroline's. She is on MTV's Drag My Dad, and she also has a podcast called Sibling Rivalry, Meet the man who has found 15 more hours in a day, Bob the Drag Queen, everybody. I'm also the host of uh, the H1's The Pit Stop as well. You know what, bitch? Don't come here with all your credentials, okay? Because <laughs> you're no, putting am, me in the game. I am working. Um, sometimes I feel like me and Dr. Fauci are the two hardest working people in America. <laughs> <laughs> you guys might be. You guys seriously might be. Bob, this all hit at one time. Are you soaking this all in? You know, I feel like there was a change in my career about two years ago now. I did a play in Berkeley at, at the Berkeley Repertory Theater in Berkeley, California. And then something around the time of doing that play, things just kind of like took off for me. It was really wild. I came yeah. back from, I took a six month break from doing drag to do Angels in America. And then when I got back, it was like, I guess that six months, folks are like, we missed the drag. Bring More it drag. back. Yeah. I just don't know where the switch went, where drag was kind of sort of this very niche art form that we enjoyed on Sundays or at a Wednesday drag queen bingo to going mainstream and becoming something bigger than anyone expected. When do you feel that turn was? Oh, 2008 when RuPaul's Drag Race came on TV. I mean, season one was a huge switch in drag. Like, I don't think anyone can argue that. You know what I mean? It's crazy. When you saw that first season, when you heard about that first season, did you try to get on? No, I wasn't a drag queen then. I was just sitting in my apartment in Long Island City in Queens. And I was at back, <laughs> back in the day when people had TiVo. I was um, looking for shows to record on my TiVo. And then I was like, RuPaul has a show? 
what? What? I got to record this. Then I started recording it. And then immediately was like, this is the best show on TV. And I felt like I was in on this really intense secret. I would go in and work and be like, have y'all been watching RuPaul's Drag Race? And folks would be like, what? And I'd be like, girl, you have to start watching this show. And then within the, I started doing drag during the first season. So you went from watching the show to winning the show. How many years later? Uh, I, I won the eighth season. So eight years later. It's crazy because I feel like some of these queens have been doing drag their whole lives. Like they grew up doing drag at, you know, 16, 17 yeah. and worked their butts off to get here. But you kind of had an eight year run. Like, how do you first start anyway? Like, who started you on this mission? How do you find your first lash? How do you learn how to do a beat? Like, what is well, going on? I, I started drag because so I, I was a theater major in college and um, I took a makeup course called Stage Makeup. And I remember we did drag in that course. We didn't call it drag. They called it opposite sex makeup, what they called it. Back when I was in school. Politically um, correct. And then um, and then I remember I remember the makeup kit that I ordered for stage makeup. It was called a it was called a Ben Nye TK7. And it has all the stuff you need to do your makeup. Or I mean, not enough, but in my head I was like, I did, I did all this like clown makeup and stuff through my yeah. TK7 kit. So I went online, I just bought that same kit again and then went to the wig store and bought some lashes. And then I just started going online. There was back, when I mean, it's still up there, but there was this YouTuber named Petrolude whose drag name was Misty Maven who did drag tutorials online. Wow. And I would just watch them and learn. And then when did you know that combining your comedy and your drag together was gonna get you to that next level? Because watching you on season eight, that's what got you the furthest and that's why a lot of queens can't really touch you because you have that comedy background that not a lot of people have well my first gig ever was a stand-up kid like my first time ever performing in drag at in my life was at a stand-up comedy club because wow. i've been writing i've been writing comedy for quite some time and i really wanted to be able to do stand-up but i just never found the the time or the courage or the energy but then one day i was like you know, I'm gonna make. I'm gonna really make it difficult for myself. My first time in drag will also be my first time doing, doing stand up. Yeah, and I just begged everyone who worked at my restaurant to come see me do some stand up. And they all thought it was funny from work. They were like, "Oh wow, um, Caldwell's really funny, so we should probably go see him do some stand up." Damn, that's crazy. Yeah. I can't do stand up and I can't do drag. I would not. I just know my limits. I would not be a pretty woman. Well, anyone can do drag. And I will say this, not everyone can do stand-up, but anyone can do drag. But also, I mean, the point of drag isn't necessarily to be a pretty woman. I think that's a common misconception. Everyone thinks, like, the goal is to be a pretty woman. And I think the goal is to feel good about how you look and to entertain yeah. people or to, you know, offer some source of um, art. Like, to yeah. do some art that people will appreciate or that, you appreciate, that you're proud of making and then, like, you know, blur the gender line and feel good about how you look. So you feel like it's more of a self-expression and a celebration as opposed to let's see who looks the fishiest. I don't even use terms like fishy. I mean, that, that is not, <laughs> I mean, I know the term, but I don't, I don't, I don't, that's, that's not my, in my vocab. It's not my Look, I kind of got to be honest. I went into a deep dive into the drag community because I was so interested to see how, because I know in the gay community, it's really small. 
and it's super gay? catty. I'm. <laughs> it's really small. It's super catty, and it can be very stressful. So to take that gay community and shrink it again into this gay meets showgirls with artists, y'all can get it can get crazy in there. Well, listen, if you think that the gay community that the gay community is small and catty, the drag community is smaller and catty. <laughs> it is like drag queens are the worst, the worst monsters. Truly monsters. It's like no, it's like Gina Gershon in in Showgirls. It's nuts. Yeah. And then on top of that, an even smaller community is the drag race community. So like drag is a sorority. And then drag race is an elite sorority. And then the like then there's like the elite sororities within the elite, you know? How long did it take you to learn the politics behind the drag community? Because again, eight years is not a long time to come in and run for president of drag you. I mean, I live in New York City. So me, Caldwell, I am from Georgia. I'm from Georgia. I was raised throughout the South. But my drag essence, you know, Bob the Drag Queen is a New Yorker. Mm. And, um, and I started doing drag in New York City. And it is really a trial by fire in New York City. They really push you in the deep end. I was clubs with girls like Shivai, Rhea, Kevin Aviance, Lady Bunny, um, like all these huge power, Shaquita all these like legendary powerhouses who were like running the New York City scene. And for whatever reason, they really liked me. Like out of all the new girls, they really liked me specifically, especially Peppermint and Bianca and Sherry Vine. Pep, Bianca and Sherry Vine just decided that I was one of the girls they liked and they would- They were gonna take you in. About how to do my hair, how to, yeah, how to, how to get a gig, all of, like the, the aspects of drag. That, that maybe people at home aren't thinking about, like how to get a gig, how to keep a gig, how to, um, you wow. know, get your friends, get, like all that stuff, how to host a show. Damn. Yeah. Can y'all write a manual? Because a bitch just needs to know how to get in. I mean, honestly, may maybe we should. Years ago, I remember being in Bianca Del Rio's tiny studio apartment in New York City with her two dogs. And now she's like, has like a great house out in Palm Springs. Still the same two dollars. Killing it. Um, but it's like the, the, the journey that we've gone on. It's just so nuts to me that this is all happening and you are hosting HBO, one of the most premier premium networks alive. You have a, a nine-story billboard on Sunset. Is that still surreal to you to turn on but, that TV and see you standing there hosting the show? You know, I gotta say this, and this is gonna sound like I'm being, what's what I'm looking for, um, extra. But like, oh. for me, success doesn't feel weird, it feels right. And when I wasn't, like when I didn't have, when I wasn't on TV, I was like, this is the weird part. Like not, yes. being, not being on TV, I was, like, I was like, something's weird, this has gotta change soon because I see something else for myself. And, and you know, when I auditioned for RuPaul's Drag Race, it's in my audition, so maybe I released my, my, my audition one, one year. I said, I'm gonna get on RuPaul's Drag Race, and I'm gonna win it, and it won't be the most impressive thing I've ever done. Oh, wow. You and, knew that. And I still feel that way. Yeah, and I still feel that way about being on We're Here. Someone's like, oh my God, you, you, you have a show on HBO. Like, that's it. And I'm like, that's not it. That's not it at all. There's like, more. I intend to do a lot more uh, impressive things than that. 
damn. I just think, like, I don't know. When I watch the show and it's so great to see three people support somebody's dream and to support somebody's vision and to give back what Bianca Del Toro and some of these other women gave to you in the drag community to go to those small towns. But I have to say, you guys deal with ignorance in such an amazing way. What was it like to feel that small town kind of sort of hate, you know, in real life? Because you're right, you live in New York. Like, you know, Bob the Drag Queen doesn't have to deal with that in New York, but these people still deal with yeah. it in the, in the middle of America. What was it like to go back to, to those places? Well, the small town love that I was getting was way bigger than the small town hate I was getting. I mean, I do think that with the Trump administration, uh, bigots are feeling emboldened, but all in all, bigots are still embarrassed to be big. Like, we have not reached a point yet where they're like, yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're still, no, no, they're still hiding. Embarrassed to be bigots. So we, didn't, we weren't getting a lot of overt uh, hate. And I, and I do want to shout out and say that these communities really embraced us and accepted us and turned out for these shows. And these towns are not just a bunch of people with who are closed-minded. There are... Yeah queers in these towns, allies in these towns, there are people of color, trans people, indigenous people, as you saw on the show, in these towns. So it's not just a bunch of, you know, Trump supporting rednecks in these towns. There are there are some really truly amazing people in these towns. That's amazing. I love every single thing that you guys do. What are you hoping that you get to tackle on season two? So if you all watched and you'll know that uh, episode six, we had to leave Spartanburg I would love to be able to go back to Spartan because because the, the lockdown happened during an episode. So oh, I would wow. love to be able to go back to Spartanburg, North Carolina, and um, like finish what we started there. Um, and I also I want to go to like my hometown or Shangela's hometown, Eureka's hometown. Oh wow! You think Georgia's ready? I mean, if listen, if Spartanburg, North Carolina's ready, then maybe Columbus, Georgia's ready. You know what I mean? Uh, you know what? I will take that from you. Um, this unbelievable thing happened and i feel like people are expressing Wait, themselves where are you from? i'm from where, south where louisiana she's from south louisiana south, south la <laughs> she from south la and if i showed up in heels and a ponytail trust me we'd be getting some looks well that's the thing because because you know we were well we were in um we were in uh ruston louisiana i'm not that far a few hours yeah we did the show in ruston and i feel you because there is a like when, whenever we we toy with the idea of going to Paris, Texas, which is Shenzhou's hometown, or Johnson, Tennessee, which is Eureka's hometown, I was like, oh, that sounds great. But then I have trauma connected to being queer in Georgia. So when people say Georgia or Columbus or my hometown, I'm like, uh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I didn't sign up for this. Yeah, like we can go to Paris, Texas, but y'all don't know about middle of Miss Columbus, Georgia. But trauma wouldn't connected. it be therapeutic to go back and face that trauma as the strong person, the strong character with Bob, you know, having your back at this point? No, it would be amazing. And it'd be scary, but it'd be amazing. But I mean, I'm, I'm no stranger to doing that scares me. You know what I mean? 100%. Have you worked through the trauma? Because, you know, I have trauma from where I grew up. You know, I was bullied. You know, I was beat up because I was a black gay man in a black community. Um, I dealt with overt bigotry, you know, 
coming from people who I loved and who I thought were my friends and, you know, family. And they didn't know the impact that they had on me. And I carried that for a very long time. Have you? Oh, yeah, that's did- real. Stuff that people realize, people don't realize, like a moment you have with them that they probably don't realize that. And you think about it, like all, every time you see them, you're like, I will never forget the time you. you I'll never forget the thing, time. Yeah. And, yeah. and have I dealt with that? I mean, I have certainly um, worked through it as, as, as well as I can with the resources that I have. Um, and I feel like I'm in a really good place. I'm not afraid to go home. And oddly enough, I'm really proud to be from Columbus, Georgia, even though Georgia has been doing some really unsavory stuff lately. That's the thing about being a, a queer Black Southerner. There are moments where you're like, I want to be so proud to be from my hometown. But then now Georgia has like abortion laws on the books. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that makes it really hard to root for you all. It makes it hard for me to be out in these streets being like, Georgia, honey, Georgia. (laughs) Miss Georgia. Yeah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What would your life be like now? Because I try to explain this to a lot of people who um, don't realize that the South as divisive as it may be and as you know closed-minded as may be it's very welcoming and it's easy to get stuck there because you want to chill and you want to do what everybody else is doing and you can buy a house for two hundred thousand dollars and live comfortable what would your life be like right now had you stayed in Georgia Mary I don't even I can't even fathom I mean I, I probably well I probably would have finished college um, I was getting a degree in theater education. I'd probably be a drama teacher right now. That was my my plan when I was in college, just to be a, a high school drama teacher. And I'd probably be somebody's drama teacher <laughs> over <laughs> in Clayton County, Georgia, in the suburbs of Atlanta, girl. That would probably really realistically be where I ended up. But everybody has that flip. Like, there is a switch that flips in everybody. Mine was... I was in law school. There was a guy that was toying with me and I followed him to law school like a dumb idiot. I'm so stupid. I almost wasted $40,000 following this dude to law school who would never be with me. And I had a moment of clarity where I was like, wow, I need to get the hell out of here. And I literally drove to Los Angeles within 12 hours of realizing that. What was that flip moment for you where you were like, okay, this is not the life that I want and I'm never going to find it here. What happened? So this uh, theater company came through and um, auditioned the, the students at my college and they only hired one student and it was me. So they offered me a job to go work in Minneapolis. And then when I worked for Minneapolis, I uh, met some like actors who were working and then I was headed back to Columbus. I was like, well, gig's over, headed back to Columbus. And this guy that I work with said, he, he said, you got something really special and if you will go straight from here to New York City, airplane ticket. <gasps> and I said, wait, really? And he goes, yeah, if you go from here to New York and skip going back to Georgia, I will buy your plane ticket for you. And wow. I was like, all right, let's let's do it. Divine intervention. Yeah. That was David Cross. Shout out David Cross. 
do you still talk to David Cross? I haven't spoken to David in a while, but you better uh, call we, his we ass on his birthday because I know we always talk on his birthday because his birthday is Christmas. Mm. What was your mom like when you, you said I'm moving to New York and I'm gonna I'm gonna do this? Oh, my mom's really supportive. My mom thinks that the sun rises when I wake up and it sets when I go to sleep. She thinks that I'm just a little bundle of happy princess energy. She, my mom thinks I'm it. Like my mom really <laughs> has gassed me up my whole life. So my mom's always like, I'm just so proud of you. And whenever I was a kid, she goes, I just always thought he was just creative. I just said, my baby show is creative. The uh, black mama, that's the black mama yeah. go-to. I just said, my, my child's creative. He is, my child, he is so creative. My mom's from Mississippi. Um, so, I don't know. My mom is great. Uh, I'm also not the only queer in my family, which helps. Oh, wow. That's really I really nice. lucked out in terms of, like, family. I, it's not easy for people who are normally the only queer in their family. And for Black... Especially in for, Black families. For Black families... Sorry, let me back that up for a minute. Black Southern families mm-hmm. who were raised in the church. Go. To be a mm-hmm. queer Black man of God does not exist. And what happens in Black families who are in a church community, the shame and the blame goes to their parents for some odd reason. Yeah. And my family is a, a Black family from the church. But again, I have a queer uncle who kind of paved the way for me. I will say that my family was not happy when I <laughs> when I told them that I wasn't Christian. That really drove them kind of wild. They could um, take the they, gay. They couldn't take the Christian. They could They could not take me being like, I'm not a Christian. They were like, what? And I was like, I'm sorry. I'm just not out. Uh, to quote I didn't even I'm not that I'm not that girl. To quote I didn't even sell. <laughs> but do you ever sit and talk? Because this is very interesting to me. I just had this conversation with a guy who um is in his 50s. He's in the generation above me. And it took me a minute to understand that sometimes people are a tiny bit bitter because they feel like our generation had it a little bit easier. So I just wonder if you ever sat and talked with your uncle to ask him about his you know, um, experience with being queer, black, and gay in the South. Well, my uncle's from Mississippi as well, but he lived, he's in Atlanta since before I was born, um, or at least since I was a kid anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, I talked to my uncle about it a lot. We were actually just talking about it the other day about what it was like to be a queer in the Atlanta scene in the 90s. Ooh, um, that must and, have been bumping. And to live through, yeah, to live through that, through like Preakneck and like, all that stuff, Black decadent, I mean, Southern decadent, all that stuff. And he is definitely one of those people who, like, lived through the AIDS crisis, um, was affected by the AIDS crisis, um, and is still on the other side kicking today. Wow. Shout out Uncle Steve. Shout out Uncle Steve. Uncle Steve, I mean, Atlanta in the 90s. Uncle Steve's like a warrior. Uncle Steve, Uncle Steve, like, got his leg shot off for like dating a white girl in Mississippi in like the 70s. Yeah. In 1970s. In this in the 80s or the 70s, Uncle Steve got his leg, like his shit, he has one foot. He had his, he was dating a white girl and then in Mississippi didn't like that. So he got his, yeah, people think I, I was saying like the, the 30s. No, this was like in the 80s or the 70s. Got his shin blown off for dating a white girl. Uncle I Steve just, is so interesting. Uncle Steve's been shot like six times. Uncle Steve, and it's Uncle Steve is still kicking? Yes. Kicking, kicking with one leg, kicking. <laughs> and still at the turn up. Yep. 
it's so interesting because even as a gay person, I had to educate myself on what it means to be non-binary. Mm-hmm. And I now fight with people who say, oh, I don't understand it. And I'm like, but you need to understand it. You need to make yourself yeah, sure. understand it. And, I, I, and I'm going to use this as a teachable moment right now for people who listen to this. When you hear people say that they're gender non-binary, Bob, please tell them what it means. So when you're a gender non-binary, what that basically means you don't identify as a man, you don't identify as a woman, you um, acknowledge that gender is a spectrum and you're somewhere in the middle of it. For example, if you're listening to this and you're queer, you can use the Kinsey scale as an example. Kinsey scale says that everyone has a Kinsey number, one through six. One, Mm -hmm. you're completely straight. Six, you're completely gay. And there's a theory about the Kinsey scale is that no one's a one and no one's a six. Everyone's a two to five. Anyway, if you acknowledge ideas like the Kinsey scale, you can apply that same idea and put it to gender as well. Yes. And for example, right now I'm wearing, what am I wearing? Like like this little, like how? It's a captain, it's Um, a captain textile moment. Yes. Um, and I also acknowledge that my non-binaryness was I, I was able to tap into it because of drag and because of, you know, blurring the gender line in my work life and then it bleeding into my day-to-day life and then me realizing that I have been pushed into this social construct of what it means to be a man or to be assigned male at birth. And I was doing things simply because of the rules, not yes. because I wanted to. Yes. You know and, what I mean? It's like, and it's pressure. This is also the idea that we have, we have a lot of these ideas put into our heads without our consent. Um, this goes from everything to, which is why I got into trouble. Oh, I'm probably about to light your podcast up. Mm. I got into trouble a couple of years ago for saying all white people are racist. Everyone got really mad at me for saying that. And when I, and when I say that, what I'm saying is when you are white in America, you have racist ideologies put in your head whether you consent to them or not. So they're already in there. So just because you don't call me the N-word, if you see a bunch of black guys walking towards you and you cross the street, that's racist. Yeah. Whether or not they're gonna rob you or not doesn't change whether or not it was <laughs> racist. And if you cross the street, that, and, or if you look at a bunch of black guys and you get nervous, even if you don't cross the street, that's still racist because you have racism baked into your head. You saw a group of people, you, cho- you took their race and you decided in that moment that they were something without any knowledge other than the color of their skin. But do you find in this movement, in this year, that you're finding that more people are willing to acknowledge those behaviors and that way of thinking and start to yes. change them? Yes. So I said this on um, Billboard. Billboard does this prize series where you get a bunch of drag queens together and talk politics. And I said this probably three years ago and people were mad. I mean, how dare you? My son, my son's neighbor's dog's owner is black. Um, How could I be racist? But now people are like, you know what? Let me actually take a step back and realize what I just said um, or the things that I do in my day-to-day life or how I um, conduct myself. And that, that was racist. And now, but people, no one wants to admit it because racism is ignorance and no one wants to admit they're ignorant. But the only way to gain knowledge is to acknowledge that you are lacking it. 100%. And I'm going to double down on that because I'm going to just say this. And I, I think that it's fair to say, and for everybody out there listening, I also think there are Black people who are racist as well, which is why we aren't acknowledging that trans lives are being affected by what's going on. So 
I don't think we're just talking about white people here. I think that as the black community, we have an issue with trans lives and we need to abolish that ASAP. Well, I do think that, that the issue with trans with trans lives, especially in the black community, doesn't necessarily lie within racism, but it does lie within prejudice and misogyny, specifically trans misogyny. And this is not just something for just the trans people to address or just the queer people to address. Like we need in this world, cisgendered, straight, black men to yes. stand up and say trans lives matter. We need Lil Wayne, we need Jay-Z, we need Wiz Khalifa, we need Waka Flocka Flame. Where you at? And not just like black academics like Barack Obama and Angela Davis. We need like black- The people who influence. Cisgender black men that are influencing. We need comedians like, uh, what's his Dave Chappelle. Who won the Oscar for Ray. Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx. And oh, don't even give me some. Don't give me some Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle is really, oh, this, this is a real blow in my system because like Dave Chappelle is someone that I've always looked up to and his comedy is so, uh, lately his comedy has been really doubling down on this idea that trans people are a joke or that trans existence is funny or that trans people just live in their lives is funny to him. And then when Dave Chappelle, who's one of the most respected black people in comedy and in entertainment uh-huh. goes on TV or when Netflix gives him money to say, I can't stop laughing at trans people. They're just so funny. Then it validates that idea for other people and that other people double down and agree with him. When instead yes. he could use his voice to say trans people are valid and he could also still be funny within context of these things. You see what I'm saying? Like you, don't have, you don't have to punch down. To, like you're Dave Chappelle. All, all of your content leading up to this year, you didn't have any misogynistic jokes in any of that stuff, and it was still successful. So why do you don't need that stuff? But also, you could use your voice to stand up for those people. You could use your voice to point out discrepancies in the community against trans people, specifically trans women, specifically Black trans women. Yeah. But instead, just to say they're funny and I can't stop laughing. Yes, I agree with you. If you're going to put me down you know? and use me as the punchline of a joke, at least validate my existence and let people know that I am here and I'm human. Yeah. So that part. But the black community, we, we still have a lot of work to do. But that's I, that's also the gay. Don't even start on the, on the queer community. Don't even get... We don't even have enough time to talk about the gays, okay? We don't uh, even... Ha- that's a whole nother special, a JTS special yeah. with everything. I just... I don't know. It's just so nuts and it's so crazy like to be in this time and see everyone begin this conversation that I feel like it's embarrassing that it took 2020 and it took so many lives to have people finally start this conversation. But on the other hand, I'm happy that we're doing it now and I don't have to do it in 10 years with my kids. You know what I mean? There is this like this slogan that's been going around the black community, which I have been really absorbing, which is, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. Have you heard this? I have, actually. Think about this. I am a Black, queer, non-binary person with a massive billboard on Sunset Boulevard. If you would have told my ancestors, one day this will happen, they'd be like, that's not a thing. We can't even walk to the front door. Harriet would be like, sure. Sure, Jan. Sure, Jan. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, keep on dreaming, Jan. If you would have told our ancestors that that Barack Obama would have happened, they'd have been like, "That's just not that's not a thing." So I've been th- I've been really relishing in that a lot. But 
100%. And I'm also relishing in the idea that I get to walk down the street and be a black man, have a job, be in love with someone, you know, show affection with someone of the same sex and not be arrested, which a lot of people who are just a few skedaddles older than us who are still alive didn't have that same type of freedom. And there are a lot of people, and I find well, that- Well, I mean, I, you, I, I don't even think you have to go to people who are older than us. There are people in a 10-hour plane right away that can't do that. 100%. You, know? you are absolutely factual. And I often say a lot of times the people who yeah. give me the most hate that I know, you know, from where I'm from, are the people who are stuck in marriages with women and they couldn't ha they didn't have the freedom to be themselves. And now they're mad at me. It took me a while to realize this, but a lot of times when people are bullying you or being mean to you or being nasty to you, it really they're really not doing it to you. It, it is a reflection of themselves and they are being down on something in themselves that they are afraid yes. of or that they look down. Yes. You know? It's just, I don't know. I wish I would have known that though. And you're right. It's people's insecurities. It's them being down on themselves. But I wish I would have known that when I was 10 or when I was 14. But that would but that would but that wouldn't but that wouldn't have helped you. It would have helped you, but like you have to it's one of those things. It's like I know we've heard this before, but it's like it's like this in Wizard of Wizard of Oz. I could have told you when you got here, but you wouldn't have believed me. You had oh. to experience it all yourself. You had did to experience I it all yourself. Yeah. Did I? I mean, I, I know I know I did. Not for everyone, but I know I did. You know what I mean? I just don't know. Like I get glimpses back of things and there are things that like and people I can't even look at, you know. I can't even deal with because of the things that I went through. And I think you might be right. Maybe I did have to go through it. Maybe I did have to understand what it meant. And I had to feel the flame and the fire. And it probably, you're right. You're absolutely right. I would have still been in Louisiana. I would have still been chilling. I would have been a lawyer. I would have been, you know, had a little firm, probably like lived my life in the closet, never had a man, was always Uncle Justin. It was always his friend from Atlanta who was coming in to visit. You're right. If I wouldn't have went through the fire, I would have not mm -hmm. been here. But I also want to tell people too, like we, we feel this like need in our lives to justify our trauma. Like I, because I'm not religious, I don't, I'm not one of those folks who believes everything happens for a reason because sometimes bad things just happen and it's not, to serve some greater purpose. Someone says like, you had to be abused. You had to be hurt. You had to be bullied in order for this and this and this. So I don't believe that you, that everything that happens to you has to have been to grave, to serve some greater purpose. Sometimes things mm. just happen to people. Mm. Sometimes things, because then if you're, if you think that, you know, you being abused has to then somehow turn into a, a something else, and it doesn't turn into that, then you think that it's something you've done wrong. So I just want to dispel that rumor to anyone here listening who feels like you have to turn your trauma into some, like, you know, a, a movie or a poem or a book or a, or a speaking engagement. It doesn't yada, have to yada, happen. Yada. That, yeah, sometimes it, it, but you can still work through it without some end product being this thing. 100%. But I also think, you know, when you go through something like that, yeah, it might not happen for a reason, but there is a lesson to be learned. I believe that. I believe you know what that, I mean? Yeah. If anything, the outcome should be 
that you know a bit better next time than to leave your yeah. back against this person or to let your guard down you know, around people or to not know that, you know, certain things exist in the world and you need to watch out for yourself. I, I don't think there's a, the end of the rainbow for every situ situation or trauma, but I do think there is a learning curve for everything. I think that you have to learn something from something. You, you, you can, you can, you can learn from a trip to the mailbox. Uh, there's something to learn from all situations in life. And then obviously some of them carry much greater impacts. Oh my God. Bob, where can I find this um, special? If you all go to iTunes, type in Bob the Drag Queen Live at Caroline's, or if you go to my website, it's all there, bobthedragqueen.com. You can find anything that has anything to do with Bob the Drag Queen. That's bobthedragqueen.com. I just want to let you know that like, I am low-key jealous and envious of what you're doing right now, but I'm also high-key cheering you on because oh, I love Shangela, I love you, and like I just love when my black kings and queens really rise up because I know how hard, how much harder you have to work in order to get that recognition. I know how, you know, how extra you gotta be to make sure you are seen and heard in this industry. So truly, I am impressed every time I turn on that show. I truly believe that you are there for a reason and you are absolutely correct. This is not going to be the biggest thing you're going to do. Oh, you're so sweet. Are you in LA? I'm in LA. Are you in LA? In this moment, yeah, but I'm leaving tomorrow. But um, but you're so sweet. We'll one day we'll have a a a, a, a gay brunch once the this, once the stores once the restaurants open up again. Oh, we'll have a full kiki because you know my mm -hmm. first drag show, the first time I ever saw a drag show in Los Angeles, I saw Shangela. Oh, work. work. And it was one of Shangela's first times at Revolver. Ooh. Oh, work. Y'all just really, y'all are connected. We're, connected it's, we're all connected. So we're going to do a Queen's Kiki whenever this is all lifted. And we're going to connect. And I'm, I'm just so happy for you. I'm going to check out your podcast. I'm going to hit up this special on iTunes. And everybody, season two of We're Here is about to come back. And it's going to, Bob's going to be the y'all. Bob is it. Now don't get caught up in no entanglements, Bob. No, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I keep thank my you so playing. much for being here. Of course, my pleasure. You guys, thanks for listening. And do not forget to subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. And you can follow me at The Lady Sitter and be sure to come back every week for another pour of your favorite celebrity.